Welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. Hello all, and thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. This is your co-host, Caden Carver, back with you for another episode packed with some of the most current dermatology research out there. This week, we'll discuss how the gut microbiome may play a role in melanoma immunotherapy, the role of UVB phototherapy and dupilumab in atopic dermatitis, notch signaling in Dowling-Dagos disease, and how a tape stripping technique may prevent unnecessary biopsies. Also, we are very excited to roll out a new feature of the newsletter and podcast this week where we highlight published work of a fantastic medical student researcher. She will give us insight into her team's investigation of atopic disease among sexually diverse adults in the United States. If you stick around for the whole episode, we will put your knowledge to the test with the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week and dermoscopy question of the week, just like we always do. So with that being said, let's get to work. Our first study entitled Gut Microbiome in Patients with Early Stage and Late Stage Melanoma was published in JAMA Dermatology August 30th of this year by Witt et al. Researchers conducted a single center case control study to compare the microbiota of healthy individuals to those with late stage melanoma. Fecal samples from 228 participants were analyzed for microbiome diversity, taxonomic and functional profile, and comparison between the groups. Results demonstrated that the microbiome of early stage melanoma patients varied between individual samples and had more rosburia compared to late stage patients, with p-values of 0.003 and less than 0.001 respectively. This difference was not significant, however, when corrected for covariance. Additionally, stool samples from patients with melanoma had higher amounts of fusobacterium compared to healthy patients with a p-value of less than 0.001. No associations were noted between microbiota taxa or rates of disease recurrence in those with stage 3 melanoma on immunotherapy. The main takeaway from this study is that while gut dysbiosis may be a future therapeutic target for melanoma, more prospective data is needed to evaluate and support these findings. Next, we have an article entitled, Ultraviolet B Phototherapy Does Not Increase the Risk of Skin Cancer Among Patients with Atopic Dermatitis, a Population-Based Retrospective Cohort Study published in JAMA Dermatology, September of this year, by Co. et al. The retrospective population-based cohort study with a sample size of 6,205 patients evaluated the risk of skin cancer in patients with atopic dermatitis who had received UVB phototherapy. Primary outcomes of the study include the incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer and cutaneous melanoma. Researchers reported that previous UVB phototherapy was not associated with an increased risk of skin of any skin cancer with a hazard ratio of 0.91 and 95% confidence interval of 0.35 to 2.35. 
The cumulative number of UVB phototherapy sessions was also not associated with a risk of skin cancer, with the hazard ratio of 0.99 and 95% confidence interval of 0.96 to 1.02. When specifically analyzing for non-melanoma skin cancer, receiving UVB phototherapy was not associated with an increased risk with the hazard ratio of 0.8 and 95% confidence interval of 0.29 to 2.26, nor was the total number of UV, UVB phototherapy doses with a hazard ratio of 0.99 and confidence interval of 0.96 to 1.03. The risk of melanoma was not found to be greater in atopic dermatitis patients treated with UVB phototherapy either, with a hazard ratio of 0.8 and confidence interval of 0.08 to 7.64. There was also no significant risk of melanoma associated with the total number of UVB phototherapy sessions with the hazard ratio of 0.94 and confidence interval 0.77 to 1.15. Authors of the study concluded that UVB phototherapy does not increase the risk of non-melanoma skin cancer or melanoma in patients with atopic dermatitis. Our third article for this week comes to us from Pediatric Dermatology and is titled Efficacy and Safety Profile of Dupilumab for the Treatment of Atopic Dermatitis in Children and Adolescents, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. It was published August 2nd of this year by Zhu et al. The systematic review of seven clinical trials and 11 observational studies aimed to assess the safety and efficacy of dupilumab, a human monoclonal antibody. The study analyzed 1,275 pediatric patients ranging from 6 months to 17 years of age. In the study, the endpoint was improvement in the eczema area and severity index, or EASI, score. After dupilumab, 72.9% of patients achieved the EASI of at least 50%, also known as the EASI 57.4% achieved EASI 75, 31.3% achieved EASI 90, and 29.7% achieved EASI 100. Duration of therapy was positively associated with higher rates of EASI with 26.8% of patients achieving EASI 75 after 2 to 8 weeks, 57.8% achieving EASI 75 after 12 to 24 weeks, and 84.9% achieving EASI 75 after 32 to 52 weeks. Researchers reported that adolescents achieved EASI 75 in 70% of cases compared to 52.6% of patients less than 12 years of age. This was significant with a p-value of 0.118. Common adverse events included conjunctivitis, which occurred in 8% of adolescents and 6.6% of pediatric patients, nasopharyngitis in 15.7% of adolescents and 10.6% of pediatrics, an upper respiratory tract infection of 6.6% in adolescents and in 10.1% of pediatric patients, and a headache in 7.6% of adolescents and 7.5% in pediatric patients. 
authors concluded that dupilumab has an acceptable safety profile and long-term efficacy in pediatric patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Our next study is entitled Altered Notch Signaling in Dowling-Dagos Disease, a Transcriptomic Insight into Disease Pathogenesis. It was published in the British Journal of Dermatology by Kumar et al. in August of this year. As background, Dowling-Dagos disease is an autosomal dominant pigmentation disorder characterized by progressive black-brown hyperpigmented maculopapular lesions that primarily affects the flexural surfaces. Multiple loss of function mutations in the notch pathway have been postulated to be involved in this uh, disease pathogenesis. Researchers in the study sought to investigate specifics of how mutations in the POGLUT1 or POGLUT1 and PSENEN genes or SENEN affected notch signaling in individuals with Dowling-Dagos disease. Following RNA sequencing, researchers noted that after knocking out the POGLUT1 and SENEN genes, the notch signaling pathway was most commonly affected. Additional pathways affected were membrane tra trafficking, receptor tyrosine kinase signaling, and estrogen receptor-mediated signaling. Researchers also noted functional changes in notch signaling in cell cultures of melanocytes, which was not noted in other cell lines. Researchers noted that notch signaling likely plays a role in the pathogenesis of Dowling-Dagos disease, but that further studies are needed to investigate all the molecular underworkings of Dowling-Dagos disease. This week's Innovations article, entitled RNA Analysis of Tape Strips to Rule Out Melanoma in Lesions Clinically Assessed as Cutaneous Malignant Melanoma, a Diagnostic Study, was published in JAMA Dermatology in September by Herefurt et al. The study aimed to evaluate a tape stripping technique as an alternative for biopsy. In the study, 200 suspicious lesions were identified. The tape stripping technique was performed first, and RNA analysis of the PRAME and KIT oncogene mutations was conducted. The same lesions were subsequently biopsied. Researchers reported a significant positive correlation between lesion surface area, age, storage time greater than 14 days, and gene expression level between all measured genes except PRAME and KIT. The tape stripping technique was 100% sensitive and 32% specific for cutaneous malignant melanomas expressing the PRAME and KIT oncogenes. Researchers concluded that RNA sequencing after tape stripping of suspicious lesions may provide a non-invasive technique to identify cutaneous malignant melanoma and avoid unnecessary biopsy of benign lesions. Next up, we have our very first installment of the Skin Depth Student Spotlight here on the podcast today. So to help us with this, student Dr. Caitlin Ripka, a fourth-year medical student from the University of Minnesota Medical School, has been kind enough to prepare a brief overview of her team's work, which was recently featured in the latest installment of the Skin Depth newsletter. So without further ado, we'll jump right in and have Caitlin discuss her project with us. For this week's Student Spotlight, I am excited to share my team's recent publication with you entitled Prevalence of Atopic Diseases Among Sexually Diverse Adults in the United States, 
This was led by Dr. Matthew Manch. In this publication, our team sought to understand and identify whether the prevalence of atopic diseases, including atopic dermatitis, differs by sexual orientation. We performed a cross-sectional study utilizing data from the 2021 National Health Interview Survey, and we calculated age-adjusted prevalence rates as well as crude and multivariable adjusted odds ratios utilizing logistic regression for current prevalence of atopic dermatitis, asthma, and allergic rhinitis, comparing heterosexual and sexually diverse individuals. Current prevalence was based on self-report of active clinical symptoms and prior physician diagnosis of each of these conditions, respectively. Multivariable adjusted analyses controlled for a variety of factors, including age, race, ethnicity, region, education level, income, insurance status, healthcare utilization, smoking status, and BMI. Our team found that adults in the United States who identify as sexually diverse compared with those who identify as heterosexual were statistically more likely to report current prevalence of atopic dermatitis, asthma, and allergic rhinitis. I thought this study was interesting because it demonstrates that sexually diverse patients are at an increased risk of developing each of these atopic conditions. But why is that? Prior studies have demonstrated that other minority groups, such as individuals who identify as Black or African American or Hispanic, are also at increased risk of having atopic conditions. While it is possible that genetic factors could influence this, differences in rates of atopic dermatitis among minority groups are likely influenced by environmental and complex sociocultural factors, but also minority stress. Unlike other minority groups, patients identifying as sexually diverse are not always readily identifiable in clinical settings. Clinical applications of this research include the need for standardization of the routine collection of sexual orientation data in clinical settings so these individuals can be more readily identified in everyday practice. While building physician-patient relationships, clinicians should acknowledge that their patients' diverse identities impact their risk of developing atopic diseases. Physicians should be aware of the structural barriers that sexually diverse communities experience and strive to provide equitable access to high-quality medical care for these unique populations. In doing this study, we utilized a cross-sectional design to analyze the data. This type of study design does not allow for the establishment of temporal relationships or causal inference. So we were unable to directly identify a cause of the increased atopic disease prevalence. However, we are able to speculate that unique environmental exposures and sociocultural factors, which are specific to sexually diverse people, may explain differences in the prevalence of atopic diseases in these populations. For instance, marginalization, lack of legal protections against discriminatory housing policies and or enforcement of such policies often increases the likelihood of sexually diverse adults to reside and work in neighborhoods with higher rates of hazardous pollution, increased occupational exposures, as well as secondhand smoke inhalation. Discrimination has also been highly linked to minority stress. For example, 
physical stress and psychological stress put on a person within a minority group due to systemic prejudice and discrimination. All of these factors are linked to higher rates of atopic conditions. While further research is needed to better understand the root causes of these differences, physicians should be aware of the elevated risk. As a medical student, what I learned from doing this research was the need for increased awareness of potential impact of socioeconomic, political, and structural risk factors, in addition to the impacts of environmental and behavioral factors that make sexually diverse individuals more likely to develop atopic conditions. It is important that this information is integrated into the delivery of culturally sensitive and equitable care for all of our patients. Thanks for sharing your project with us, Caitlin, and for giving us kind of a high-level overview. I hope that all of our listeners can take a few pearls, um, both clinically from this podcast and also maybe get a few ideas to guide future research studies as well. So we're just going to jump right in now to the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week. A 71-year-old man presented with an eight-year history of enlarging nodules on his nose. On physical exam, he had painless, violaceous, indurated nodules on the nose, ears, fingers, and toes. CT of the chest revealed hilar and mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Skin biopsy showed non-caseating granulomas. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it 1. Entomopthoromycosis, 2. Leprosy, 3. Lupus pernio, 4. Lupus vulgaris, or 5. Rhinophyma? The answer is 3. Lupus pernio. Lupus pernio can sound tricky as you're learning because it is not lupus erythematosus. Lupus pernio is a subset of sarcoidosis, which is a chronic granulomatous disorder. Lupus pernio presents with violaceous, rather than red-brown, papules coalescing into infiltrative plaques, most commonly on the nose, cheeks, and earlobes. A beaded appearance along the nasal rim is classic for this condition. Why is it important to know about this subset of sarcoidosis? It is commonly associated with pulmonary sarcoidosis, like we saw in this case. It commonly resolves with scarring, unlike most other cases of sarcoidosis, and has a poor prognosis. For our other answers, 1. Entomopthoromycosis. This refers to an invasive fungal infection that may affect the face or nose. 2. Leprosy. This is due to an infection with Mycobacterium leprae and is characterized by granulomas and neurotropism both with skin and peripheral nerve involvement. Common cutaneous manifestations include hypopigmented or erythematous, sometimes annular, anesthetic, which means no sensation to the touch, plaques with minimal scale. Four, lupus vulgaris. This is another misnomer as lupus vulgaris is a subtype of cutaneous tuberculosis infection. It presents with red-brown, sometimes annular papules or plaques that may ulcerate. 5. Rhinophyma. Typically, this is considered a variant of rosacea in which the thickening of the skin of the nose occurs due to overgrowth of sebaceous glands. Okay, good work to everyone who got that one right, 
and even if you didn't get it right, hopefully you were able to learn from it, and hopefully you'll be able to recognize it in the future. Alright, so now we'll move on to our dermoscopy question of the week. You have a 54-year-old male who presents for a complaint of slowly growing lesion above his upper lip. On physical exam, you note a pearly 1.5 centimeter nodule. Which features seen on dermoscopy would be most concerning for BCC? Is it A, maple leaf structures, B, branching telangiectasia, C, atypical pigmented streaks, D, central clearing, or E, atypical dots and globules? So, so this one is a little bit tough because we, you obviously couldn't see the picture that we were talking about here. Um, so it would be easier if you could see this in person with your dermatoscope. But the answer is A, maple leaf structures. So if you could have seen the lesion, it shows pigmented peripheral radial lines which share a common base and are located at the periphery of the lesion. These may be referred to as maple leaf-like areas or maple leaf structures. This feature represents pigment at the dermoepidermal junction and is specific for basal cell carcinomas or BCC. While branching telangiectasias are commonly seen in BCCs, they can also be seen in a variety of skin conditions. Additionally, they represent a small portion of the lesion. They may not always be the most prominent feature on dermoscopy for a basal cell carcinoma, so that's just something to keep in mind. Choice C, atypical pigmented streaks, as well as choice E, atypical dots and globules, are both specific for melanoma, not basal cell carcinoma. Choice D, central clearing, is not a specific feature of BCC. Well, I know it's been a full episode, so thanks to everyone who's stuck around for this whole thing. We hope that you have not only enjoyed the episode, but also learned a thing or two. Just like Caitlin, we are accepting medical student submissions to be featured in our weekly newsletter and podcast. If you're a medical student with recently published work, we would love to feature you and encourage you to submit the application um, to do so on our website. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in, and we hope to see you at the next episode. Until then, best of luck with whatever you may be doing, and take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.